And one of the things that we often see athletes who are less predisposed to putting on muscle easily, their window is skewed up. So they might need their low end cutoff for hypertrophy work to be like 50% plus of their one rep max. But in order to actually elicit enough desaturation, they might need to take the reps really deep. Like if an athlete over delivers O2 to the muscle, they're not going to be able to desaturate that tissue. And if they're not desaturating on hypertrophy work, they're not getting motor unit recruitment or maximal motor unit recruitment. So something like a one by 20 protocol, um, even though volume set volume is really important for hypertrophy, they might've gone from never actually doing an effective set of hypertrophy work Hmm. to now taking a set that's like very effective. Like the stimulus to fatigue ratio is great because now they're doing this chunk of work and that set is desaturating them really well, and they're actually getting that stimulus for the first time. That was Evan Pycon, and this is the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is all about applied an applied approach to muscle oxygenation and energy system management, and how we can better train and individualize performance programs for athletes. I'm not going to lie, uh, exercise physiology and getting into the, the nitty-gritty of cellular respiration and the Krebs cycle was... Not my strong suit, to say the least, in my university years. I got by, but it wasn't exciting to me. It wasn't applied and something I could look at an athlete and say, yes, this is something uh, that we are looking at and individualizing a program for you that's going to take you to your highest level. Um, Some of my recent interests have been in the world of lactate. And we've had some amazing guests on, such as Boosh Schnextander and Andy Egger, talking about the importance of these small doses of lactate for either the purpose of growth in, in something like doing 12 by 30 meter accelerations on short, uh, short rest, or for in Andy's example, doing something athletes who might need that little dose of lactate in the context of a longer sprint later in the year to be at their best. And if you take that away, their uh, responsiveness just fades a little bit. So these are questions I ask. And I recently read a book by Pavel Satsaline uh, called The Quick and the Dead, and as well as having known of the work of Viktor Selyanov, the Russian researcher, on an anti-lactate view of training, or what they call anti-glycolytic training. And in my own training, I've, I've had these up and down thoughts and experiences with, with high, rep, um, high rep formats or low rep formats and longer sprints, shorter sprints, rests and densities. And sometimes when I think I just had it all figured out, I realized maybe there was a lot I still had to learn. And so that's what brings me to our guest today, Evan Pycon. Evan is a coach, physiologist, and educator at the Training Think Tank HQ in Atlanta, Georgia. Evan has experience working with athletes on-site and remotely across the world. He's an up-and-coming expert on applied physiology and human performance. He's a former track and field athlete, and he's learned from some world-leading experts in this realm of physiology, oxygenation, performance, and individualization. I've had his work recommended to me by some of my own mentors, and Evan is a master of his craft when it comes to energy systems, athletic response, and performance. On today's show, we're going to get into a lot of ideas. Some of the main ones are muscle oxygenation and what it means from an individualization perspective, first talking about basic aerobic training and running, and then we're going to get into power training, strength training. What does this mean for sprinters? What does this mean for when we're in the weight room and we're choosing to do a lower rep versus higher rep format with athletes? What can some athletes tolerate better than others? What are ways, safe ways to create systems that allow athletes across the board not to reach points where they're going to be in prolonged periods of recovery? 
We're also going to get into ideas on muscular tension, what that means for training, what that means for how athletes respond to training, uh, what it means when athletes have that pump, uh, that pumped up look, and how when some athletes get that more easily than others, what does that mean for them? And we're also going to talk about how this shakes out in the course of training across a longer term, perhaps a whole training year, in which things are we going to focus on regarding those, those ends versus looking at short duration um, energy systems, that, that creatine phosphate system, and then the aerobic, moving into that lactate zone type mentality versus a, a different versus an approach that would train all of those systems year round. And so what that looks like, and in general, just how we can get a wider lens, a better appreciation of the energy systems of an athlete, and how we can individualize to the athlete better for enhanced strength, muscle size, aerobic and endurance ability, and just recovery from the day-to-day training sessions. This was an awesome show, so let's get on to it. Just Fly Performance Podcast, episode 189 with Evan Pycon. Evan, welcome to the show today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. So what? Uh, let's start this off by you giving us a little information on what your uh, what your background is as not just just a coach and uh, what you do in the educational space, but also your background as an athlete and what what got you into this whole thing in the first place. Yes, yeah, so I come from a track and field and cross country background. Uh, my best event was the eight hundred meter. So my entire interest with everything that i'm doing now kind of stemmed from competing in track and field and cross country and selfishly just wanting to do whatever i could to improve my own performance um i'd kind of a rocky competitive career to say the least kind of bumping into some injuries a lot of bouts of kind of slamming my head against the wall and maybe not seeing the progress that i wanted to So after spending a lot of years going through that, I kind of stepped out of competing in that sport and started to transition into CrossFit and using all the different things I learned along the way. And then that naturally led me to coaching athletes in this sport and now being involved with an organization that works with athletes in a handful of different sports. Yeah, I was going to say with you and Aaron Davis, there's something about the 800, 800 runners and, and uh, deoxygenation and, and lactate and everything that goes in those energy systems. Man, I think, the, I think the 800 really lends itself well to being that event that kind of sparks your curiosity because even just standing on the starting line of an 800 meter, um, obviously the people listening can't see on built. I'm not a huge dude, but you're on the 800 starting line. You have guys that are built like me that kind of look like two milers or 5K runners, and you look to the left of you. There's a dude who's built like an 100-meter sprinter and probably is 40 pounds on you, and all of you are kind of running the same times. And off the bat, that doesn't really seem like it makes that much sense. Like in the 100-meter sprinter, we could probably guess who's going to win that pretty easily if we bump it up to the two-mile we know who's going to win, but the 800 meters kind of that weird intersection where you have completely different body types competing in it. And I think that lends itself to trying to figure out why that is. Like, why is this dude that has 40 pounds on me holding his ground? Or why is the dude who is half my size out kicking me in the last 50 meters? Yeah, it's it's one of those races that even in my first days, honestly, I probably was reading about this in high school just because I was the weird kid in the track van who brought brought it along like the USA track and field coaching manual with Dan O'Brien on the front. If anyone remembers that book, uh, but, uh, 
I it, I remember that saying that the 800 is what the the one. I mean, there's it's like this in all the events to an extent for sure. Uh, I think the 400 too, and then I think the further you get away from that center, I think the more similar events probably can be trained for on some level. Although there there certainly are similar or differences at all levels, but. It was like you look at um, Arthur Lear training. I mean, people talk about like Peter Snell and high mile. Like you can do high mileage 800 training, low mileage 800 training. Something works. It, the, the, the training can be so radically different for all these different athletes on what produces the best result. And it seemed like that's that event in that um, you know minute 45 to two minute, maybe a little bit over two minute time span that, yeah, you just get these massive, massive training differences. Yeah, and I think that really just taps into understanding like what an athlete's physiological limitation is. Because even if we think of something like that really high mileage running, there's a period where I was really obsessed with that concept because I was reading all of the Arthur Whittyard stuff in high school and I'm telling my coach, I'm like, we need to run 100 miles a week. Like (laughs) we're training at 30 or 40 miles a week, which is pretty moderate volume for someone dabbling in 800 to a mile. And understanding now with all the things that I've seen working with like a pretty diverse body of athletes, you tend to see, for example, if someone has like if we would call it a delivery limitation, so they're limited by cardiac output versus someone who's limited by oxygen utilization in the muscle. If you take something like really high volume, easy aerobic training and you give it to both of those athletes, you might see the athlete with the delivery limitation making improvements and you see the athlete who's limited by oxygen utilization, the muscle, it doesn't do anything for them. So you have one camp saying, like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. The other camp saying, like, that doesn't do anything. And the reality is both of those statements are completely factual. Like, what is one man's drunk volume is the other man's greatest tool in his arsenal. And I think you could really say that about anything in the training world because performance is marriage of an athlete's physiological predisposition and the event demands so i think any training protocol might or might not improve that athlete's performance and i think having that layer of individualization is kind of the next step in the training world instead of having these camps like keto works hit works long slow endurance works it's like everything works for someone yeah, it's always the person it works for always becomes the messenger and, and or the athlete who loved this type of training when they were competing. And then so all of their athletes are going to do that. And again, in, in, I think the further you get away from the 800 and the 400, the, the more maybe that could be okay on some level. Uh, I think it's got definitely those 400, 800 athletes. And I don't know. I mean, I think a good, strong training culture, sometimes you can overcome pieces of that. Um, but I, I was, I'm really curious. You just mentioned something. It was uh, delivery versus oxygen delivery versus utilization. What, what are the, I mean, it's, not, it's pretty straightforward, but could you get into the differences between those two? And how do you measure those? How do you tell if someone in, when they're doing aerobic work should be, uh, could be doing like the long, slow distance or, t- or like junk miles, like you say, if they want to improve their aerobic system or if that does not really help them, it's not a low hanging fruit. Yeah, so the way that I think about it, um, I like to use like a factory analogy for sports performance. So we imagine like we have a car factory and let's say we're using Hot Wheels cars. So it's super simple putting them together. Maybe we like paint the Hot Wheels car. We slap the wheels on, put the doors on. I don't know how these things are made. Um, and out of all of those steps, putting the doors on the cars is by far the slowest step. So if we want to get more cars out of our factory, 
it's going to be a complete waste of time to paint the cars quicker, put the steering wheels quicker. Instead, we want to put all our efforts to getting those doors on faster because that's the rate limiting step. The same thing applies in any energetic sport. Out of all of the different processes occurring simultaneously in our body, like God knows how many there are, thousands of things happening at the same time, there's really only a small handful of them that really impact our performance in a meaningful way. So if we make it really reductive, and each of these are have, could have their own subcomponents, we have the respiratory system as a limiter. And what that's going to do in an ideal world, it allows you to get O2 into the body and it allows you to get CO2 out of the body. We have, we would call it muscular oxidative capacity or oxygen utilization. So once the blood and O2 gets into the tissue, that's the ability to pull the oxygen off of the hemoglobin, get it into the mitochondria and use it for energy production. Then I say delivery, but other people, you could just say cardiac output. I just like the term delivery because it makes it less science and easier to digest. And that's once you get oxygen into the blood of the alveoli through the respiratory system, that's getting it to the working muscle. So those are going to be the three primary energetic limiters that we're going to be handling. Sure. I like that delivery is it's definitely more, it could be delivery is definitely could be a more like kind of a badass term than just uh, uh, something that's more of a textbook. So what, uh, so which one of the other did you say needs? So if I have, if I have um, like a good, good breathing, but poor delivery, uh, what would, what would that be? Like, what does that mean from a training perspective? Yeah. So from a training perspective, someone who's delivery limited and the way that I'm generally, we use a lot of different technology when we're running athletes through assessments, but Moxie monitor is definitely going to be one of the big heavy hitters for us. So what I'm generally going to see that looking like when I'm actually monitoring blood flow and tissue saturation during a workout, basically what we're going to see with the delivery limitation is over the course of a workout or a interval training session or step test, we're going to see an ever decreasing amount of oxygen getting reloaded into the muscle. And that's, that's not really specific to a delivery limitation. That's going to be whether someone's respiratory or delivery limited. Both of those are oxygen supply issues. But what differentiates a respiratory limitation from a cardiac or delivery limitation is what's happening with blood flow. With the delivery limitation, we're going to see vasoconstriction trends. And if we think about um, the way that I always think about it is a delivery limitation is kind of the battle between the heart and local muscle physiology with any athlete um the muscle could vasodilate more than the heart could pump against so we could vasodilate a muscle so much that it outstrips cardiac output and if that happens we're going to black out so arterial pressure is extremely tightly regulated if an athlete's heart is fatiguing and it's not able to keep up with the output of blood to the muscle one way to protect the heart is to create vasoconstriction and that's going to maintain arterial pressure. So then at that point, when that's occurring, an athlete's ability to push through that tension in the muscle is going to be their biggest limiter to getting more blood and O2 into the muscle. So with these athletes, one way to say it would be they're almost too strong relative to what their heart could push through. So Hmm. for these athletes, you generally see Um, They indiscriminately contract the muscle. Maybe they just need some light muscular compression to produce the force output, but instead they might create a venous occlusion, which is blood's getting into the muscle, but it's not escaping. That would be kind of like that pump sensation. 
Um, or if an athlete's moving at a fast velocity, you might see they create an arterial occlusion, which is cutting off um, arterial inflow. So blood's not getting into the muscle and you're cutting off venous outflow. Blood's not escaping the muscle. So basically to simplify that for a delivery limited athlete, they just have really poor blood flow. And as a result of that, they're not getting oxygen into the working muscle. If they could get O2 in, they could use it quickly, but they're just limited in how much they could actually get in there. Sure. So to uh, um, something I would kind of um, have in my head as you're explaining that is I think we all, like the athlete who, uh, the sprinter type athlete, obviously they're, they're fast twitch and, and it's probably not going to help them in a distance type situation, but could a potential even greater drawback for that type of person be that their muscles just can contract so hard it's hard for blood to flow well and oxygenate their system well? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think for a sprinter, that would be my biggest concern. It would be that they're not getting steady blood flow to the tissue. And the way that I think about this, um, it kind of seems counterintuitive to a lot of people. But when we say like sprinting is an aerobic activity, like the only thing that differentiates sprinter from a marathoner, it's not that one's an anaerobic athlete and one's an aerobic athlete. The only difference is the rate of oxygen utilization. So one of the things that you see when you use something like a moxie, um, is that like technically, um, if you see O2 depleting on a moxie monitor, you know, PCR hydrolysis is occurring too, because O2 and PCR depletion rates are so tightly coupled. So the second you start sprinting, you're going to see oxygen just dropping down rapidly. And once oxygen bottoms out and hits its low point, that's when performance stalls. So you're not running faster once oxygen depletes, um, at best, you're kind of just hanging on for dear life. <laughs> yeah. And um, I always think about, like, they talk about Usain Bolt as a sprinter. Like, he's not the fastest sprinter. He just slows down at a slower rate than everyone else. And if you think about that ability to slow down at a slower rate, there's a lot of things that go into that. But one is going to be tissue oxygenation. He might be the person that has steady blood flow to the tissue. So he's slowing down less because he's able to maintain that O2 in the tissue. And then he's able to um, resynthesize phosphocreatine and get ATP and basically fuel his contractions. Sure. Yeah, I know they, they talk about I, I, that was something that I had read a little bit. Maybe five, how to shoot, maybe been 10 years ago. I'm not really sure. But the idea of uh, what causes that we can hold top end speed for about three seconds. But give or take a little, little bit right and and um but what causes that and it's at the time people still um didn't know and maybe we probably still don't know I, just because well from my understanding it was the something to do with you started slowing down before the muscle availability was actually out at the but then again i'm sure once you're out you're out like it's just maybe it's the nervous system pre-shutting it down because it knew that was coming <laughs> and it's like okay let's be safe because we don't want to be stuck on zero and then be still you know going at 100 miles an hour maybe that maybe i'm not maybe that's not the point right now i i was just that was just something that i kind of had in my head but um i so do you kind of see that in uh, even in the gym and i think we'd get more into this and we're going to talk about lactate and and stuff that's more perhaps gym related but can you almost see that happening in terms of if someone's lifting not with like a blood flow restriction but just in normal clothing could you get a feeling for that by how pumped up someone's muscles tend to get in just the average like if you had all your athletes do like three sets of 12 or something and with the athletes who have a little bit more pumped up muscles are those the people who are the occluders that 
perhaps oxygen is not getting through as well because of the strong muscular contractions or is that not really have anything to do with that? Yes, I think that could be a useful proxy of it for sure. Like I think um, kind of bodybuilders kind of got that right in some ways traditionally. Like they would talk about like getting the pump and that being when you're training at an effective load. Like if you're if you could bicep curl fifty pound dumbbell for twelve reps. Well, if you take a ten pound dumbbell and you rep it out, like you're not going to feel anything. You're probably just going to be creating muscular compression. And when you train heavy enough, you could occlude the muscle, and that's when you're getting that swelling effect. So I think being able to experience that swelling is certainly going to be a meaningful proxy for when someone's getting that occlusion in the muscle. Um, but with a lot of subjective perceptions, I always leave the caveat that a lot of people just aren't that in tune with their body, so they might not perceptibly notice that venous occlusion where they might be getting those reactions. And a lot of times... If we're talking about like microcirculation, like someone could be doing an assault bike at a pretty steady effort, and we might see that they're getting some blips of cutting off blood to the artery or getting venous outflow restrictions, but it's still just an easy, like smooth, quote unquote, aerobic effort for them. So um, I think there's a lot more that goes into it versus lifting heavy or just feeling these like pumps and swelling effects. Yeah, for sure. You uh, uh, you mentioned something as well. You were saying... Um something that I believe you're saying that when um, oxygenation in the muscle drops, so when the oxygen is low, that you said PCR can't last long in that situation, or that's phosphocreatine you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So so essentially, if I'm sprinting, and I'm doing like a 200 or something like that and fast, and as soon as, as soon as that oxygen is starting to hit the low point, we can assume also that the phosphocreatine, like the phosphocreatine is going to tap out because it doesn't have the oxygen to back it anymore. Would that be a, an accurate statement? How does that, is that, is that basically along those lines or is there anything with lactate that's coming in there? How does that work? Yeah. So I think that that's a good way to explain. Like if we look at, um, I think the primary study that first showed that PCR hydrolysis, um, lactate production, O2 utilization all occur simultaneously. I think it was Macaulay's, Macaulay et al. study, I think it was like simultaneous in vivo measurements of like HBO2 saturation or something to that effect. But if we also look at um, like Shulman Roth's glycogen shunt model, that's basically what they get into, which is that these energetic events are occurring so quickly, like in the range of milliseconds, and they're so tightly coupled with one another that if O2 is depleted, we're not going to be able to have enough oxidative phosphorylation to restore PCR. So if we see O2 recovering on amoxie, we know there's PCR available. If we see O2 bottomed out, we're probably not going to have PCR. Um, Lactate does tie into that as well, because when we're in those low oxygen states, we consider lactates like a temporal time buffer, like when there's low energy availability lactate is going to provide energy between those like millisecond contractions i think that's where that ties into the model too i wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor simplyfaster.com now has available in their store you hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the k-box which i have and use regularly but today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the Gym Aware and the new portable Flex unit. 
So let me start with the gymware. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the gymware go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10", squatter versus a 511 point guard so you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units it's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as coach me plus team builder and athlete monitoring so new to the store is the flex which is the ultra portable and lower price travel version of the coach's favorite gym wear so just like the gym wear the flex measures the shape of each rep range of motion total work done eccentric dynamics so for this and the gym aware, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. Interesting. Uh, so in terms of a, a track and field sprinter, someone who's doing really short burst stuff, maybe 10 to 20 seconds tops, I think we, we tend to, and this is where I think things get really divided. Um, and track sprinters can and have been really successful doing an extremely low amount of aerobic as as is not the nature of the event, event clearly. But in 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 looking at the tie-in of all these energy systems together. And I mean, I think the, the idea of an aerobic base is, is hopefully dead for those athletes in the sense of just slogging miles and or longer sprints to, to prepare. But I, I mean, what we, we still, I mean, it's still of importance to have an, a, a healthy and functional aerobic system for other reasons. If I am working with speed power athletes for, for the reasons you just mentioned, and I think a lot of sprinters will get that through doing not running, but general strength circuits and stuff where they maintain a high heart rate doing something else or a moderate heart rate doing something else so they don't uh, interfere with the neuromuscular pattern. But what are your what are your thoughts on if I'm if all I do is the hundred and two hundred or I'm, or I guess football is a different animal so, stuff like that, but something where it's just a really short burst power sport. Um, what what is your take on how I should approach aerobic system there for recovery recovery between sets? How do I know what using some of the tools that you have? How do I know what type of aerobic work I perhaps should be looking at? Um, even though it's not a main a, a main main component, it's obviously still present on some level. Yes, yeah, so I don't work with as many sprinters, so a lot of these aren't things that I've really played a ton with in practice. So I'll put that out out front that just so people aren't like shit testing this, but um. Basically, what I think about when I see those traditional like aerobic training protocols and people are like, oh, these don't work for sprinters to like slog through work and people get slower. I would understand why that happens, but I think that's also getting into that. That's not an argument that sprinters don't need aerobic work. That's an argument for the types of protocols that they do should not be the same as an athlete doing some of those distance training pieces. So one of the things that we see, um, and this applies to athletes that are a little bit more powerful and heavily muscle, muscled, even in sport like CrossFit, 
is those athletes that are kind of like the indiscriminate contractors, they have very powerful muscle contraction. Maybe they don't have as much eccentric cardiac development. When they do like that long, slow, easy aerobic work, inevitably with CrossFit too, you see it impacting their strength a lot. It impacts their recovery. They just get kind of slow. And when we pop a moxie on them, and we could also see this popping up on Omega Wave as well, when they do that type of work, I would always talk to athletes in the day after and they'd be like, I feel like absolute shit. Like I went out for a 30 minute easy aerobic run and like now I feel trashed and my heart rate was at 110 beats per minute. Like obviously easy aerobic work is bullshit and we should never do it. It's like, all right, maybe, or maybe you are not getting the adaptations that you think you're getting. Like if we pop a moxie on them, you might have an athlete go for their 20 minute easy run and you might see that they're maintaining like 10% oxygen saturation in the tissue the entire time. Um, and that they are cutting off blood to the artery because they're contracting harder than they need to at those speeds. And what that kind of tells me, it's like, man, if they're doing their sprint training workout, maybe they spend like two minutes in hypoxia total over that workout. And now they go do their 20, 30 minute easy aerobic run and that tire thing is in hypoxia. So you took what should have been an easy aerobic training session and you made that the most stressful training session of the entire week. So is your aerobic training bad or is that just a bad way to do it for that athlete? And even what you see on Omega Wave, they go do that easy training and their anaerobic indexes pop up and their aerobic indexes go down. So for those athletes, it might just be that their easy aerobic work looks completely different than another athlete. Like you mentioned the circuits, and that's probably where I would go with it too. Maybe you get like a bunch of different movements where you're alternating muscle groups. You do like 20, 30 seconds of assault bike work. You're getting um, a little bit of desaturation in the quads. And then you go and do ski erg, a muscle that has higher oxygen concentration. And you just keep moving through these different workouts. So you're never desaturating a muscle. You're never cutting off blood flow. Now you're just getting some nice, easy cardiac stimulation. You're not running into any of those same hurdles that you might get if an athlete's using the same muscle group for 20 minutes straight. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was the type of athlete that actually could go on. 30 minutes was kind of getting in my limit, but but 20 minute, like a 20-minute trail run, I would actually feel better the next day. And so I'd imagine I was the type of person that had was able to not be in hypoxia or, or that um, condition where there wasn't oxygen in the muscle. And so, I mean, that's where I guess this, these things hit us all differently. And we need to, I feel like you can almost in some ways look at a sprinter, like a hundred meter sprinter running and say, yeah, you're not going to do well. <laughs> this 20, <laughs> yeah. 30 minute run is not good for you. Not a good idea. Don't do it. Um, I, uh, my track coach in college had us doing these things. I feel like it, it was a method that really covered the bell curve pretty well in the sense of if there is one thing that you can do that all the athletes probably are going to be okay with it was, he called it scramble circuits. You'd basically run like, I don't know, like maybe 50 to maybe 200 meters tops at a jog. And then you'd stop somewhere and do a, a body weight exercise for however many reps. And then you'd run somewhere else. And, and you were always taking enough breaks, but your heart rate stayed up the whole time. And and um, the different athletes would give different inputs on how many reps you do on the circuits and things like that. So I always kept that with me when I went to coach um, on the college track level. And I felt like I did feel like the bell curve of athletes always responded pretty well to that, even the sprintery sprinters, um, just because it was more of a body. It was more of a. Uh, uh, it was more like a low end fitness class level thing for them than it is like go run or even do even go do um eight two hundreds at a particular clip um i think that that always was something that was a good recovery uh, modality for them yeah and i think that's where like an innovative coach comes in like we have all this tech in 
it allows us to understand why what's happening is happening. But I think a lot of the things that this tech would lead us to do and um, figure out, like a lot of really good coaches knew these things like 20 years ago. Um, like I think of one of like the really good, uh, I think he's primarily like, middle distance mile, 1500 meter coaches like Frank Aguillon from New Jersey track club. Like I'm listening to an interview with him and they're asking him about like aerobic and anaerobic training. And he's like, I don't even know what those words mean. Like I just watch athletes and I know what to give them. And he's produced some of the best 1500 meter athletes in the country. And same thing that you're talking about. It's like that coach probably just had a really good keen eye. They've probably played around enough stuff and they figured out these methods without needing to have a moxie or maybe understand the physiology. They could still get to the effective protocols that way. Yeah. And I know we'll hopefully get into talking about uh, this, this and strength training and like the higher rep stuff. But before the show, you were, you were talking about this, where if you had CrossFit athletes who had good experience or, or just, a, I think it was CrossFit athletes and versus people who weren't as experienced and you, and those athletes could end a set of their own volition, they would usually end it at the right place in terms of before they deoxygenated, then like the intermediates who had no clue or something like that you were saying. Yes, yeah, so this was like years back. Um, we were monitoring. It was one of the top male CrossFit Games competitors. I think he's been to the games like five times now. Um, and we were not giving him any coaching feedback, any cue, and we just popped the monitors on. We just wanted to see what happened during his workouts. And I would be watching. I see oxygen slowly coming down, and once it's about to bottom out, he would just stop his sets. You'd watch oxygen climb up, and once he would reach like a pretty good recovery baseline, he would just start going again. And he would do this throughout the entire workout. And after you talk to him and you're like, why did you stop there? Why did you break there? And he's like, I don't know. It's just when I felt like I should. It's not really overthinking it. And one of the really interesting things, um, this was way before we had a moxie, maybe like five, six years ago. My boss, Max Hag, he coaches a lot of top CrossFit Games competitors. And he had made a comment about one of our CrossFit Games athletes, Travis Mayer. And he's like, Travis takes a CrossFit workout. And he turns it into cyclical work. And he was kind of saying it as like an offhand remark, like, oh, you watch Travis and he could basically move indefinitely without ever having to take big breaks in his workouts. And that's what he meant by he turns it into cyclical work. But years later, playing around the moxie, I would pop the devices on Travis. And I'm like, he literally turns CrossFit Metcons into cyclical work. Like I put a moxie monitor on him and I put it on an intermediate athlete or maybe even like a bubble up full games athlete. And for Travis, you watch his desaturation trends and it's like a perfect linear trend from start to finish where it's like a nice steady desaturation of oxygen and he finishes his workout with oxygen almost bottomed out. It almost looks like he goes and runs a mile or a two mile with really good pacing and execution then you watch the intermediate athlete or like a bubble level games athlete and their O2 trends are all over the place. They're going up, they're down, they're spiking. The athletes are taking rest, they're, um, rest, they're getting blown up. And you're like, man, they're doing circuit training. Like for them, CrossFit looks like do a set of bench press, go do a set of lat pull down, kind of that like old school circuit bodybuilding style training. And for Travis, it looks like go run two miles on a track at 95% effort. And it's almost a fundamentally different sport for the best athletes versus like the on the cuff athletes or an intermediate athlete. Yeah. And when you, when you hit that deoxygenation, basically if you stay there, so if your muscle is deoxygenated and you stay there, just like we're talking about the sprinter doing a a long, slow run, 
who's deoxygenated. That's when the all the adaptations are happening that are is going to thrash your recovery times, right? Like it's going to really prolong how long it takes you to be ready for the next workout. Yeah, and that's where you also see technique and movement quality fall apart. Like I know CrossFit has like a really bad stereotype in the strength and conditioning world. Like CrossFitters are always getting injured and like I get that it's not for bad reasons. You do see some pretty gnarly form, but it's when someone is trying to perform that work in hypoxia, that's when muscle coordination just goes out the window and you see like people completely breaking down. But you look at those top athletes and you're like, start to finish on some of those workouts. Like they're finishing with textbook form, even on the last reps. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's uh, it's really an interesting point because I do think we like to tag and generalize things as human beings and say, this is bad. This is terrible. This is, this is, but it's really, well, let's look at what's happening on a technical level. Let's look at what's happening inside the body. And I think those are much bigger indicators as to if this thing is really bad. I mean, someone who's doing CrossFit and bottoming out their SMO2, right, or deoxygenating completely and trying to finish wads on that is going to be bad from a metabolic perspective and technical perspective and therefore joint perspective and yes that person maybe should if they can't fix their mindset probably should do something else Um, maybe that's that's probably a little bit more the um, the nuances of whether something is truly good or bad yeah and i think it's almost like a top level crossfit athlete is like versus like the kind of gen like i agree most people and like general population probably maybe shouldn't be doing CrossFit. It might not be appropriate to them, but that person is as similar to a top level games athlete is the person who walks the local 5k is to like Galen Rupp or something like they're just two fundamentally different creatures. So I feel like we can't even like we use the general pop to kind of shit on the elite in the sport. And it's like, man, they're just, they're just different things entirely. Yeah, yeah, and I couldn't see like an elite level crossfitter the way they're built. I could not see them going out. They're not built to go do like run five k's or anything like that. You know, they're built for the sport of CrossFit. It's very, it's a very specific build, and it's to me, it's always just fun how we all to find that sport that you're built for, and then to really dive into that and get good at that. Yeah, and that's the thing about a top level CrossFit athlete. Like some of the best guys, they might run like a five minute mile or like a seventeen minute five k. Um, and you're like, that's pretty fast. Like, they might snatch close to three hundred pounds. But you're like, you look at any of those numbers individually, and you're like, a five minute mile. You're like, ah, eh, you're kind of like a middle tier high school runner. <laughs> a two hundred eighty five pound snatch, like you're an okay weightlifter yeah like none of those are really that impressive but then you sandwich them together and you're like man snatching 300 and running a five minute mile that's a very specific type of fitness yeah it's like the arnold at the arnold uh classic that arnold pump, pump and run thing that they had which was i think definitely preceded crossfit where you have to i forget exactly what you bench press your body weight for reps and then if you get every rep you get deducts like something crazy, like I think like 30 seconds off your time. It's something that's pretty wild. And you get a max of, I believe, 20 reps. And then you go run a 5K. And the guys who are winning that and the girls who are winning it, I remember looking at these results uh, when I was in college because I went to it when I was 21. That was 15 years ago and they were doing it. And I was like, whoa, some guy benched his body weight 20 times and then ran a 16 flat in the five guys pretty good <laughs> like he must be he must be a t-rex arms person but uh, yeah. still it doesn't matter that's that's amazing yeah. uh i was just like pretty blown away at that anyways uh let's so let's get into 
we, we've had a great like primer here in energy systems and oxygenation, occlusion, effects of all these things, and as well as how the energy systems mix together. And you were talking a little bit about that, so I think it's a great time to jump into uh, my really. I mean, it's all important, but this was like the main thing that I wanted to get to because I read this book. Um, and I've been aware of this for a while. So Pavel, Pavel Satseline wrote a book called Quick and the Dead not too long ago, um, which was very much built on the works of Viktor Selyanov. And I hope I'm saying that right. And I saw Viktor. Viktor's a Russian researcher who is a very um, anti-lactate type person, meaning he, he really is against generating lactate in training. Uh, and I think they call it anti-glycolytic training or AGT. I actually saw Victor speak at Jay DeMeo's uh, Central Virginia Sports Performance Seminar like six years ago. So it was kind of cool to see him pop up in that book by Pavel. And But I, I read a book like that and I think to myself, well, I, this book would make, if, if it was just me reading this, I would be all about this. Because yeah, I, I personally don't think I ever responded good at all to workouts that got me to that point of lactate. Uh, in fact, I can tell you I didn't, but I don't think that means that there's people who don't. Um, so I'm just, I'm really curious on your take on the whole lactate and training situation, especially working with CrossFitters and WADs and the, that type of thing where that's a huge part of it all. Yeah. So first of all, I'm glad that you didn't make me say Selyanov or Selyanov first. <laughs> I've been saying it probably wrong for the past six years. Um, that Jay DeMeo talk, was that the one where Val Nazadkin was translating for him? Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, Val so said he watched... disagreed, actually, I think, with the with Victor at that point, too. Sorry, I just had to throw it in there because I found that interesting. That It's debated yeah. is what I'm saying. It's not – I think it's super cut and dry. Yeah, so um, I've actually – I've read a little bit of um, Selyanov or Selyanov's research. You could get it translated from Russian. So a lot of his research, specifically the stuff that I think Pavel would – consider anti-glycolytic research um a lot of it is on isolated muscle fibers which to start is mildly um questionable so a lot of Solyanov's um discussions with his studies that he's doing was more or less saying that we shouldn't train multiple types of fibers within a single workout there might be some form of interference between that or at the very least you're not getting maximal fast twitch fiber stimulation when you're doing that and I think that makes a lot of sense. Like if we think of fast twitch fibers and these high threshold motor unit motor units, um, they're activated close to muscular failure. And generally the first few sets are the ones that are going to train that the most, because once there's lactate accumulation, it's going to impact calcium uptake in those fast twitch fibers. And if we interfere with calcium uptake, we're not going to get muscle contraction. So, off the bat, I'm in complete agreement with that. If we're going for maximum fast switch fiber stimulation, we probably don't want to be bathing those fibers in lactate because it's going to F up excitation, contraction, coupling in those fibers. But I think it's one thing to acknowledge that in isolation. And I think it's another thing to be completely anti-lactate in general. And I think that's where Pavel makes some jumps that, I'm not sure if Selyanov would entirely agree with him. I think it's more of he's taking Selyanov's research and extrapolating it out a little bit more than maybe we should based on the body of scientific evidence. And I think a lot of that comes from maybe like a fundamental misunderstanding of what lactate does on his part. And again, I like if I could talk to him, I would love to have this discussion because I hate to kind of straw man people's ideas. Mm -hmm. 
So that being said, this is my best interpretation of what he's saying and trying to find like where I do agree with him and finding where I do disagree. Um, and I think with lactate being typically labeled as that waste product or being like anti-lactate, I think that comes from the belief that lactate is what causes like pain, fatigue and reductions in performance. And I think that's a natural assumption to make because when we see those things, there are high lactate levels. But if we look at some of George Brooks's research, which um, he's kind of being vindicated a little bit more now, like he started putting out these lines of inquiry in the late 70s into early 80s, that lactate isn't a waste product. And that's actually a fuel for muscle cells. It's present all the time, like sitting here right now, we're using lactate as a fuel source. It's actually a very necessary fuel source, particularly for the brain and the muscle tissue. It's just in recent years that that's starting to become more of a mainstream belief. Um, so I think in reality, if we look more towards that glycogen shunt model, this is where we see like the true role of lactate. So during exercise, glycogen is going to start being depleted instantly. But after glycogen is broken down to a certain level or it's partially depleted, they see that glycogen levels just remain steady. And the reason for that is that glycogen starts being resynthesized as quickly as it's being utilized. And during that process, glucose phosphate is going to be turned into lactate. And then lactate is going to be oxidized to supply um, like the short-term or temporal energy needs for resynthesizing glycogen and PCR. And the issue is that that process is just really, really inefficient. So when that process is happening, we are going to produce more lactate than is actually needed for oxidation. And that's where we run into an issue. When we produce more lactate, that's when it interferes with calcium uptake. So in my mind, it's like lactate isn't a bad thing. Lactate's fuel for oxidation and lactate's going to allow us to resynthesize glycogen. So the issue isn't lactate. It's when we're... producing more lactate than we could consume so to me it's like maybe instead of just trying to eliminate lactate entirely since it is such a necessary fuel it's better to improve the ability to clear lactate or utilize lactate in the tissue and i think um that's where it becomes more context dependent like if i'm trying to be the next uh uh fuck what is his name uh, there's like the uh, he was maybe a jumper. Was it like Werner Gunther, the dude who just jumps around basketball courts for? Oh, the a the the shot putter who does all the plyometrics. Is that what you're yes. talking about? Yeah, yeah. So if I'm trying to become him, maybe lactate's going to be a bad thing because I think when they had studied him, he had like ridiculous fast twitch fiber <laughs> hypertrophy or maybe hyperplasia. You're probably not going to get that with lactate accumulation because you're going to be training other fibers once it accumulates. But for anyone else, like a mixed sport athlete, you probably don't want to train fast twitch fibers exclusively. And being that lactate's going to be produced in most sports, you do want the ability to utilize and clear it. Like one of the things that makes the Kenyan marathoners some of the best in the world is that they could shuttle and utilize lactate at a way faster rate than most other people. And their training is specifically designed to be able to do that. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, so I have a few thoughts based off of that, because as I was reading Pavel's book, and Pavel, like, Easy Strength is one of the best books I've ever read, and that also 
I forgot to mention it before, but like the, we were talking about the idea of self-regulating and in there, they're talking about power lifters self-regulating on like the lower rep level, like doing a three when they could have fived it and stuff like that. And I, I just thought that was cool. And, and again, saying all the, all this saying like Pavel has been a hugely impactful uh, person on my own coaching. Uh, one of the things that they said in the book that I thought was interesting that I, I'm curious on your take. And you said Selenov, it was just like on single muscle fibers or something. And, and, you know, the body's a system of systems, obviously. So I obviously the more we zoom out, the more the different the things can get different. But he had said, and, and this is where I'm, this is where my thought and interest is, is not necessarily the workout itself. Uh, because I think we all know if you go and run a 400 as fast as you can, there's going to be you're not going to be able to do anything for the next 30 minutes that's productive it's just you're not going to it's your you have your muscular coordination is messed up because of the higher lactate levels and so within the workout itself i think it becomes functionally obvious to a point unless you're just doing i think lifting which case the coordination is now not as big of a deal and you can grind it out but if it's something that's functional it's it's like like sprinting or playing or jumping or something that's way more coordinated, I think it does change. Anyways, long story short is they think Selyanov, and this was in the book, Quick and the Dead, as they were talking about lactate. If you get too much lactate in there, it's like creates an acidic state that burns up mitochondria and that can like clean out your, keeps you from basically the idea that it would keep you from having a, a larger amount of mitochondrial storage. Uh, or energy storage. I I didn't know I didn't know what to make of that. What do you what do you think about that idea? Yes, yeah, so I have heard that argument. I I do know um it was like Sluyanov's book that he came out like way way long time ago. It was the theory and practice of like didactic coaching. It was like some crazy name. Um, and he talks about that idea a lot. And I do agree with that to an extent. But when you look at the research, you're like the impacts of that are short lasting and that's not just from getting some lactate accumulation that's from like extended hypoxia for long periods of time so interestingly one of the things that we do see on the moxie if there is um tissue damage or if there's a lack of mitochondrial function due to doing too many hard workouts with not sufficient recovery you will see a lack of ability to load o2 into the tissue and that athletes do have impaired oxygen utilization after the fact and I think it really comes down to when we're talking about acutely versus chronically, because if that happens at an acute standpoint, like what would appear to be mitochondrial damage, not being able to load O2 into the tissue or not being able to utilize, like, all right, let's think of all the different things that are happening. Mm-hmm. If lactate's accumulating at a very fast rate, we're probably in a deoxygenated state. So if we're in a deoxygenated state, we know there's not going to be sufficient ATP, and in my head, I'm like, what are all the different things that APT does? Well, it's going to power like 20 different enzymes to start for being super reductive. One of those enzymes is going to be the sodium potassium ATPase. So that's going to regulate um, ion gradients, so wanting potassium in the cell, sodium out of the cell. That stops working. Now sodium's going to flood into the cell, potassium's going to be flooded out. One of the really important things for mitochondria is regulating potassium levels both around and inside the mitochondria. If those become out of balance, mitochondria could um, lice, so it becomes a volume issue, and that could greatly impact mitochondria. Like you're, you can't utilize oxygen in the mitochondria if you basically blow them up from the inside. <laughs> um, another function is going to be that you're not going to have muscle contraction because the ATP um, myosinase, and then the last one is going to be the ATP or um, the 
calcium ATPase, which is going to allow for calcium to go from the sarcoplasm back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is going to allow for muscle relaxation. So acutely, if we're monitoring oxygen saturation, when there's high lactate levels, we're going to see that, oh, we can't utilize oxygen inside this muscle. So theoretically, that could be because the mitochondria are impacted. But if lactate levels are sky high when we're looking at that, we could make a logical or we could, maybe it's not logical because it might not be accurate. Is it lactate that's causing that to happen? Or is it that we're in a hypoxic state? Mm -hmm. There is also lactate production. So the same reason that lactate was vilified 30, 40 years ago, when we're very fatigued, there's lactate high and people made that causal relationship that like, oh, lactate is this lactic acid versus it's a fuel for oxidation. I think it's kind of the same straw man argument where we're hypoxic, so lactate's high. We have the mitochondria not functioning, so it must be lactate that's causing this, which perhaps that does play a role, but I don't think you could definitively say that at the very least. So in reality, like I, this is my perception of uh, your answer here is the body is a system of systems and we, we pin, we may be pinning some of these negative adaptations on lactate when perhaps they're more a result of the deoxygenation. Uh, would that be correct? Yeah. I think it's like a simple, like it could even be summed up as like correlation doesn't imply causation. Like <laughs> sure. There might be lactate when the mitochondria aren't taken up O2, that doesn't mean lactate is the reason that that's happening. Got it. And so it's interesting. I think, well, I'll say this. I, 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 when there's a training outcome that's in the works, um, it makes me really more excited about ex-phys because that was not one of my strong um, subjects in the university. I mean, I got, I was a good memorizer and so I figured it out, but I think I forgot it right away because I didn't have anything to stick it to, you know, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I think that topics like these are really interesting. And I think the big ones um, and here, so here's a few applied things that I really want to get into in, in all this, because it does make a difference. I think it's easy just to say, well, if I train a speed power athlete, well, all I'm ever going to do is just, just short, really short things and that's it. Um, but there's, there is other things at play. Like you, there, there's, I think, and it's important. And the idea of you'll hear things like, and, and I've seen this where someone might be stalled out or if you're stalled out on uh, low reps, people who start doing some higher reps and seeing some gains, things like that. Or even um, Andy Agarth on a previous podcast, who's a track coach and has a good exercise physiology and muscle phys background, had talked about uh, decathletes who, when they took out all the lactate work near peak, that athlete got worse. Like they needed a little bit, they needed to get just a little bit. Like Boost Jackstator uh, talks about giving athletes a mild to moderate dose of lactate in training. Um, maybe through acceleration development with slightly incomplete recoveries. And so I do think this is an important element. So that's why I find it important to talk about. But one of the things that um, Pavel mentioned in the book, and this is where it's like, now it's, I don't know if it's an epiphany or like not a mind blow. It's just one of those things where a bunch of things connect as he was talking about um, like the sweet spot of continued work in a set. So okay. if you're doing continued work for, I think it was 12 to 25 seconds and that, also took me to that. There's that Inno Sport book where they talk about brackets of work, and there's these. Oh, they try to quantify these brackets, and so it's like the AN two bracket one or something. But anyways, this this twelve to twenty five second burst rate area where uh, he talked about uh, the A not A um, not ATP or adenosine triphosphate becoming an ADP, but going all the way down to AMP, and that being related to I think AMPK. Um, 
which I don't even remember. I remember reading about that in Rick Brunner's book and a little bit about what that did with fat loss and things like that. But anyways, when you go to that 12 to 25 second place, you you maximize the AMP um, volume, I believe, through that process and that being a good thing. But if you go beyond that in a set, if you keep cranking, you know, 30, 40 seconds, then I imagine you would get deoxygenated. But I think that being like the point where all those negatives start to happen. Mm-hmm. So I, what's, um, would you have any thoughts on that? Like that sustained work sweet spot and with whatever's happening with that AMP um, mu- uh, substrate being in the muscle? Yeah, so um, I would need to see specifically what he's saying about AMP because that's not um, something that I necessarily believe to be accurate. So I would want to see more of like the actual research on that. But what I always think about is we have what I would call like game game level interventions. I can't remember who I heard that term from versus like molecular mechanisms. So. I think what he's talking about might be like a game level intervention. Like it's something that you do in practice with an athlete and you find that it works really well with people. And then you try and kind of justify it post-talk with the science. And it's really easy to like, you could kind of come up with a plausible sounding scientific mechanism for a lot of things, but it might be at the expense of ignoring the rest of the body of scientific literature versus um, some theories, like if you have a very good background in fundamental science, and then you could work from that direction up to figuring out what protocols work in practice. And I don't think either of those approaches are better or worse. I think there are different ways of trying to arrive at the same thing. So that's a training concept that I see falling into that first category. I could see that being very effective. And it's kind of one of those bell curve concepts that like 12 to 25 seconds of work, whatever duration of rest, it's probably a pretty good window that um, someone's not going to be completely bottoming out O2 in that window. They could recover and they could kind of repeat efforts. Like we think about most field sports at the very least. Um, you basically want someone that could hit a high bout of work, rest, and just keep repeating that over and over and over again. And I think using that type of protocol um, is very effective for that. Maybe that 70% of people, but it's kind of just a catch-all. Like it's a way to allow an athlete to perform a high volume of high intensity work without seeing any performance decrement. But I don't know if it necessarily has to do with ATP becoming ADP or AMP or if it necessarily has to do with lactate either. Like one of the things that we do with the Moxie lot, we do repeated sprint training. We'd call it like repeat desaturation. And generally we kind of use the same protocol. It's like 10 to 30 seconds of work one minute to 90 seconds of rest done at maybe like a 75 to 85 percent of an athlete's max velocity depending on the modality and you might have an athlete do anywhere from like five to 30 sets of that and when you monitor it with the moxie you can figure out where to cut the interval when to start the next interval and i think we're kind of arriving at the same thing that pavel would be doing i think my main disagreement would be the logic behind doing it perhaps sure uh, the the thing that I was linking that that um, twelve to I, I think I want to say I was twelve to twenty five in the book. I, it's got to be in the ballpark, but uh, was Doctor Michael Yesis's uh, one by twenty lifting method, 
And yeah. I think I think it was saying too that that at that point you could improve the amount of mitochondria in the muscle or something like that too. But I, anyways, I was just thinking about well, a one by twenty. If you do a, a rep about every second, maybe second and a half. I mean, the twenty might take you a little over that, depending on the exercise. If it's a little bit more range of motion versus less, but um, I was thinking that you know that some people have talked about getting really good results on that. And I was thinking, well, a set of 20 or set, I, I've found for me personally, like one set of 10 to 14 to be a little, my kind of sweet spot, so to speak, um, depending on what you're doing. But it's, uh, I, I, I was wondering if that probably like tied in, you know, if, if you're just hitting that sweet spot on all these different body movements and getting, um, you're basically getting a good response before you go into desaturation. <laughs> uh, and I, I feel like there's got to be something to that in that realm of things, like just doing a single somewhat higher rep set or even like sets of 20 squats, right? Um, although in, in the Yeses program, it was half squats and not deep squats, and there's a big difference, huge difference there. It's Yes. Yeah, so. Yes, I think where that gets into, like if we think about doing it for strength or hypertrophy, like desaturation ability is going to be kind of a marriage of volume and intensity. So, um, and I'll get to the half squats because I think there's something really um, impactful to say about that specifically. But one of the things that, like, for example, if I want an athlete to do strength or hypertrophy work, one of the things that I'll do is I will zone their strength training with the moxie. So basically, we have three types of different, like, blood flow reactions. We have compression reaction. It's a light squeezing of blood vessels. You drive some blood out of the muscle. You relax. It comes back in. Most athletes, that's going to occur at like zero to thirty-ish percent of their one RM. You have venous occlusion, so you pump it out, blood comes into the muscle, and it doesn't leave. That's that swelling feeling that generally happens between like thirty and seventy percent. Then you have arterial occlusion; you just completely cut off blood to and from the muscle. That's generally seventy plus. Um, depending on the athlete, those ranges could get skewed a lot. So you might have one athlete where they're getting venous occlusion from 20 to 40% of, or 20 to maybe 50 or 60% of their one rep max. Then they get arterial occlusion. You have other athletes who they might not get venous occlusion until 50% of their one rep max, and they don't get arterial till 95. When we look at the hypertrophy training literature, one of the things that you see is as long as a set is taken to failure within about a 30 to 90% of an athlete's one rep max on a set to set basis, those are equally effective for hypertrophy. That window is largely going to overlap with when an athlete's getting venous and arterial occlusion. And one of the things that we often see athletes who are less predisposed to putting on muscle easily, their window is skewed up. So they might need their low end cutoff for hypertrophy work to be like 50% plus of their one rep max. But in order to actually elicit enough desaturation, they might need to take the reps really deep. Like if an athlete over delivers O2 to the muscle, they're not going to be able to desaturate that tissue. And if they're not desaturating on hypertrophy work, they're not getting motor unit recruitment or maximal motor unit recruitment. So something like a one by 20 protocol, um, even though volume set volume is really important for hypertrophy, they might have gone from never actually doing an effective set of hypertrophy work to now taking a set that's like very effective like the stimulus to fatigue ratio is great because now they're doing this chunk of work and that set is desaturating them really well and they're actually getting that stimulus for the first time and i think having them do the half squats is important because if we think of a back squat it's really not a great movement for hypertrophy because it's a linear ascending strength curve it gets easier as you go up 
So if you want an athlete to hypertrophy the muscle and create desaturation, picking a movement like a leg extension or a leg press where the muscles under constant tension makes more sense, where for a back squat, you're kind of left with either banding it up. So you create a linear strength curve with accommodating resistance or doing a hack squat where the top half of the squat is, um, a linear strength curve like it's equally difficult above parallel than it is at lockout so if you do one to 20 there you're probably going to get really massive desaturation in the working muscles during that set yeah it's, it is really interesting how that muscle mechanics do set that all up and i always I, yeah i always felt like there was something about even even the way that one set of 20 half squats hits me versus a ten, set of 10 back squats is different um, <laughs> And uh, I tended to like, I think I tended to actually like this set of, and I've had a, there was a, there was a guy back in the, I don't think this form is around anymore. His name was Andrew Darkey and I'm hoping I'm saying his last name right. And he was getting, um, he was into dunking and vertical jumping as we all were and as I still am. And his, one of his big training methods that he had written uh, an article about that was really interesting was he had gotten away from, I think a lot of the lower rep lifting and his main strength work, if not his only was to do a single set of 20 half squats, um, basically like maybe three or four times a day. And it was, he would take it, he would push it to almost failure. Like it's pretty hard each mm-hmm. time. And then he'd let himself get full recovery and then he'd do it again. And he got great. That was where he was jumping his highest. He got his highest and best results on that. And these are the things that I think of a lot because I think to myself, oh, I don't think that uh, technique is going to be necessarily the best for everybody, every single athlete. I think that's very specific to his de- you know, deoxygenation profile, right? But he was clearly getting great results on it. And it's just one of those weird things, right? Where now tr- it's not necessarily specific because <laughs> when we think specific to jumping, we think, single shot, you know, depth jump or something that's like a heavy squat or something like that. But this is not. And that's where I love getting into these energy system talks because I'm like, well, what is going on there? <laughs> what is going on that helped him so much? And in a power thing, nonetheless, obviously, it's the it's the energy system backing and there's other things going on. Maybe there's some stuff going on the tendon too. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just thought that was a really cool anecdote. And that's the kind of thing where like you almost wish that he had like two identical twin brothers that you could get to do different things and be like, could he have actually gotten better results doing something else? Like, was he just a freak that was going to respond in that way no matter what he did? Or was that like actually the best protocol for him? And those are the questions that are interesting because for me, I'm like, I work with a lot of high level athletes and a lot of times I'm like, I don't even want to change anything with their training. I just want to figure out why it works for them. Yeah, for sure. I know Andrew had done, I think he had literally done absolutely everything. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that he had settled on that. And he's a guy who ended up doing like, I think he was more built for running almost. Like he he runs marathons now. And so it's uh, maybe, you know, I, it, make, it would make sense that uh, someone who's maybe more like a runner probably needs those higher reps to get the same, uh, some sort of uh, stimuli, this, uh, different stimuli than someone who's a little more... Um, I guess you'd say like a, a track and field sprinter type person. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, cool. So uh, just last question here. And that is, uh, we've probably talked about it a little bit, but training on preferentially inc- improving one's uh, fast twitch fiber. So we had talked a little bit, you mentioned team sport athletes and a lot of sport athletes need a mixed ratio or they need to, there's elements of both that they certainly need. But if we're just talking like pure power, really, um, what, are, what are some elements to consider in the whole, um, you know, uh, deoxygenation and lactate and training that's just preferential to that type. Yes. Yeah, so I think where 
where primarily you're gonna to want to be using tension-based modalities versus like metabolic stress as a training um, stimulus. And we're also probably gonna to want to be keeping, like in my mind, when I'm thinking preferential stimulation of fast switch fibers, I'm like, we probably need to keep session volume pretty low and maybe use frequency as our main point of control. Because once we kind of tap out the fast switch fibers and once we start getting that lactate accumulation, that's when we're not gonna be training those fibers anymore. And that could happen pretty quickly, like for high effort sprint work or maybe some like top end strength work that might even be like two to four work sets. So in those cases, it's like maybe we need to leverage frequency more to get those adaptations. So I think um, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. And that's where something, even though it seems like I probably argue with someone like Pavel's methodologies a lot, that's where I'm like, he probably has some of the best ideas regarding that concept. Like if I had to um, recommend someone who's probably the person that's kind of pushed a lot of information there, like it's probably him. He's definitely one of those people. Yeah, for sure. So tension, so just tension being the key there, uh, or the, the, the state of tension. Uh, no, I did have actually one more thought. I was just, I, this was in my head and I wanted to come back to it, but this idea of, uh, like with the, with the lactate, I, I, I've heard, I was just talking with uh, Rafe Kelly, uh, who's a natural movement practitioner up in, uh, amongst a lot of other things up in Seattle, but he used to work with in CrossFit and he talked about, there was a, a training model for a lot of elite athletes where they did, they did more of an ends to middle approach. So it was like more strength and then aerobic, but then in the main brunt, uh, brunt of training, but then when they get, they got closer to the wads, uh, or the, the big competition, then they'd start doing wads, like maybe six or seven, eight weeks out. Um, yeah. And you see that in track and field too. And you see an ends to middle certain short sprints and then we'll just do fitness on the other end and strength and maybe with some long runs. And then we get into the middle towards the end. Do you think that that middle though, the more you know about an athlete in terms of desaturation, the more that you wouldn't necessarily have to be like, save that to the end, you know, cause you can know, know what's happening more. Um, or what are your, what is your take on like the ends to middle idea? Yeah. So I think, it makes a lot of sense in a lot of sports. I don't think CrossFit is necessarily one of those. Um, I think if I had to compare the way that I would train a CrossFit athlete to maybe something in the track and field world, it would probably be similar to maybe like a Charlie Francis's vertical, vertical integration kind of model, or maybe like a Hank Krajinoff like dynamic fluid periodization type model. So the way that I think about training a CrossFit athlete, because there's so many different things that they need to train throughout the year, I would, we use what we call like a limiter bridge performance type approach. So we have their limitation-based training. So this would be like pure physiological limiters, like delivery, respiratory utilization, um, basic like movement parameters that they need to work on, or even like sport-specific strength priorities, like absolute strength, strength speed, dot, 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 et cetera. Then we have their pure performance work, which is literally their sport. Just go smash everything together and have at it. And then we have the bridge work, which is kind of that middle ground. The way that I conceptualize training is we want to do all of that at all times of the year. So for a CrossFit athlete, they're literally training every sport quality 12 months out of the year. The only difference is that I think of it kind of like um, tuning knobs, like volume and frequency we're just tuning volume and frequency up on one to prioritize and maybe maintaining another. So instead of going through these blocks, like building things up, then moving on to other qualities, maybe like a block style periodization or even 
um, like an ends to middle where they spend time like aerobic base work and pure strength and move on to something else. You find that that doesn't really work for CrossFit athletes. So instead, we're always going through cycles of building and maintaining, like we're building some things and maintaining others. Then maybe we reprioritize their training. And instead of programming in like discrete blocks of work, uh, I think of cycles as more of like one and a half to two weeks. So we're programming in very short periods and then just tweaking things every other week as we go along the year. Um, so it's a little bit more of like a fluid approach. And I think that tends to work better for high level athletes in that sport because their needs are a little bit more complex than um, maybe some other sports where there's like a singular task, like they're someone's just trying to run really fast or they're just trying to lift a weight really heavy one time where a CrossFit athlete, they literally might need to compete in 30 different types of events ranging from an 100 meter sprints to a two hour row to a one max clean and jerk. Yeah, it seems like the, 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 the extreme of the games is just getting more too. like how long they're having to do various things as well. So it probably just changed the training too. Yeah, yeah, it's getting pretty insane now, like with the marathon distance row and then having like a powerlifting meet in the games the same year. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Uh, but anyways, hey man, um, it's about the end of the time I have for the show today, Evan, but thank you so much, man. I learned a lot and it's definitely, it's making XFIS a lot more applicable for me. So I'm excited to uh, think about some new things in training based on our talk today. I appreciate it, man. Uh, thank you for having me, man. It was great getting a chat with you that does it for another episode thanks for tuning in today appreciate you guys being here with us if you enjoyed the show don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review on itunes stitcher whatever you're tuning in on we would really appreciate it also much love to our sponsor simplyfaster.com they've been a long time sponsor of this show should be so be sure to check them out their blog their store see what they're doing they've recently redesigned their website and they have an amazing array of sports tech and training tools available all right we'll see you guys next week with another great guest have a good one